book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start it towards the end of Acts 4 very quickly. The people of God after Pentecost are from all over the place, from all up in modern day Turkey and all over in modern day Greece and places like that, Rome, and they've all gathered at Jerusalem and then Pentecost came, uh, thousands believed. And so there they are now at, in Jerusalem and they're staying there close to the apostles. Well, that means, because they didn't have any traveler's checks or debit cards, that means before too long they hit a financial hardship. And so the local believers are now putting forth money, are selling property and so forth to take care of them. It's an episode. It's not the standard of, you know, God is calling on us for voluntary poverty and mandatory poverty. This is an episode where their hospitality and generosity is showing up in what's happening. So pay attention to how this works. We're starting chapter 4, verse 32. We're going to read all the way to 511. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." And so then comes the first example. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's another example, but now it's a counterexample of some stingy people using religion to hide their own avarice. Okay, so here it goes. But... A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Was it a problem that he had kept some of the money? Apparently, what he did is he lied. He and his wife are going to lie and say, this is everything we sold the property for. We're giving it all to Jesus. It's a lie. Thus, the words that come next. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. There's the lie. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We'll keep the story in the back of your head as we turn now to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. As we continue our series in 1 and 2 Chronicles, Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. 
So 1 Chronicles 13 is riding hard on the hills, heels of everything you read in chapter 11 and 12. The successes of David and the unified um, courage and loyalty of those who are gathering around David. Then comes chapter 13. And I want you to understand some of the other background of chapter 13. So let me go back a little bit in history. Just a few decades before, there were two priests who used their priestly ministerial position to oppress and abuse God's people. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And they thought they could get away with it and all. And finally, at a moment came when the God-resistors, the Philistines, came against Israel. Well, Hophni and Phinehas felt like they could use God. So they pull out the ark like a good luck charm. Anybody remember good luck charms? They pull out the ark like a good luck charm and take it into the battle. Well, God is willing to allow his kingdom to take setbacks. And the kingdom took a setback. They were all defeated and the ark was confiscated by the God resistors, the Philistines, and taken to Philistia and set up in Dagon's temple. Some of you may know the story. Dagon lost his head over the ark. And so finally the Philistines who are being plagued at the same time decide they're going to send the ark back to Israel. They've had enough of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they take the ark that's not supposed to be put on a, on a, shot, on a cart, on a, on, a, on a cattle cart. Okay, They take the ark and they set it on a cattle cart and they send it back. And so the cart comes back. So the Philistines had no problems sending the ark back the way God didn't want. But God actually has a standard for the way he's to be treated and his property is to be treated. Well, I'll talk about in a minute. So as I read chapter 13, ask yourself this question. Whose lead is David and those around him following? The God resistors or God's lead? First Chronicles 13. And David consulted with the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds... With every leader, and David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and from Yahweh our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites and the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul, and all the assembly, all the assembly agreed to do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all of Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jearim. And David and all Israel went up to Bet-Baalah, that is the Kiriath-Jearim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of Yahweh, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio, or Ahio, however you want to pronounce that, were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Shidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and, di- and he died there before God. And David was angry because Yahweh had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Peretz Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? 
So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in, the ho- in his house three months. And Yahweh blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. What I've read to you from Acts, what I've read to you from 1 Chronicles, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Given the distasteful flavor an episode like this can leave in our mouths, we pray, O Lord God, that you would help us to stomach what is here and to find that what was at first bitter to the taste to be sweet to our souls. For Christ's sake we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. So there are sermon notes in the back of the worship guide that you can see there and some questions the end. So my friends, many folks that we know and many folks maybe that you've read over the years, they all want to see revival and reformation in the church. Even the reformation came about because people wanted to see revival and reformation. And that's a good thing. The church does need to be resuscitated and refurbished in many places, especially in the Western Hemisphere. But the question to ask is, Will any old revival or reformation do? And the answer from 1 Chronicles 13 and beyond is a clear, resounding no. So let's walk through this scene. And if you look at the sermon outline, I've given it to you the way the chapter unfolds. It's kind of a chiasm. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but think of it as a greater than, less than sign. Kind of a V-shape, right? So the first and last part really are overarching statements... And then there's a second part, so it moves narrower. And then finally you come to the middle part that is the point of the whole chapter. So it's kind of a V-shape. And so that's how this lays out in this chapter. So the very first part is the preparation to move the ark. You can see it in verses 1 through 4. Here we are coming out of chapters 11 and 12, where there's been waves upon waves upon waves upon waves of mighty men with all of that genealogy of courage and unified loyalty, and they're all gathering around to make David king and support him in his kingdom, and it's it's success on every front, and David is riding the crest of success. And it's there, that thrilling moment, riding that crest of success, right? If you think of um, being a surfer, you know what I'm talking about, right? So riding that crest of success, David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so David's sentiment is a good sentiment. The ark has not been in the tabernacle for decades. And and David wants to start moving everything together in Jerusalem when he finally will build the temple so that the ark will be in the temple like it's supposed to be when he finally builds it. So it's very fitting. He wants to draw the ark closer because the ark sacramentally, if you will, is all about the presence of of God whose steadfast love endures forever. And so David wants the ark there. So David's sentiment is a good sentiment. In fact, it stands in stark contrast to Saul's. Notice when you read verse 3, chapter 13, verse 3, let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. 
And that's what you heard when we were back in chapter 10, the last two verses of chapter 10. Saul did not seek the Lord. He didn't really care to seek the Lord. So David's sentiment is right. We want to draw close to God. We want God close to us. It's a great sentiment. Sentiment. But there's a subtle irony in David's intent. It's kind of the way the wording is when you get to the end of verse 4. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And every time you kind of run across that phrase, your mind hopefully runs back to having heard it in a similar way, clear back in the book of Judges. In those days, there There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or maybe your minds rightly run back to the book of Proverbs, like Proverbs 14 and verse 12, or chapter 12 and verse 15. In those days, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Or the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So there's a little hint in that last statement. David's sentiment is good. And in fact, still that unified loyalty. Everybody in town and all, everybody is all on board with this. That's how it puts it when you get there in verse 13. All the assembly agree to do so. So David's got great sentiment, good sentiment, and he has majority agreement. And so that should automatically equal what? Success, right? Good sentiment, majority agreement. Ah, but let's look further. So there's a move, starting at verse 5 through 8. There's this move towards getting the ark and bringing the ark. And notice it's a move with joy. In fact, as you read verses 5 through 8, you start noticing that the move is going along quite smoothly. And yet, there's something that seems to be missing. What is it? Well, in all the good sentiment and all the majority agreement, they haven't asked God's opinion of the whole affair. It's kind of the absence, you know, uh, makes it very clear that something is missing. They've not asked God his opinion or his directions for the whole affair. And so what do they do? Well, they pick up the ark, just like the Philistines had done decades before. The God resistors are done. They pick up the ark and they throw it on top of the local moving van. That's what a shopping cart, that's what the golf, uh, the uh, cart would have been for. It's a moving van. They throw it on the moving van like any old piece of household furniture. Did you hear that? Like any old piece of household furniture. It's what the Philistines did. God didn't do anything about it. Might as well do it ourselves. It's efficient. It's convenient. Let's just do that. Let's just treat God's furniture Like it's common. That's what they do. And so they haven't thought about what God himself has said about an event like this. Now, that's kind of the hint when you get in the middle of verse 6 as it talks about the ark. Notice how it takes this little break and tells you more about the ark. To bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of Yahweh who sits enthroned. Over above the cherubim. This is the furniture of this God. Surely you would think you treat it just a little bit different. You know what I mean? I mean, if I took my wife's wedding veil from when we got married 
and decided to use it in my shop for staining stuff. You couldn't do it. It's, you know, it's a veil. But, but if I cho- chose to treat it like a common rag, you would immediately think, not only is Mike a knucklehead, and I am, but what is he saying about his marriage? Right? Our actions say a lot about how we think about someone or other things. They're treating God's furniture, the God who is who sits enthroned above the cherubim like anybody else's furniture. Well, here they are just tooling along, enjoying their good works, enjoying their pragmatic program, enjoying their worship, enjoying their religion, and having good sentiments and majority agreements. But as I've already said, they seem to have forgotten someone. And so you come to verses 9 through 11. And what is God's response to this moment, especially as the cattle hit one of those Oklahoma potholes? And let me tell you, Oklahoma potholes are as bad as Memphis potholes. We rode a mass transit for General Assembly, and those potholes were about the size of ours. I mean, it was amazing. We have two states that have these giant potholes. It hits a pothole, and so the ark kind of rattles, and Uzzah, who is a Kohathite, by the way, or Korite, by the way, a priest who knows the law, Reaches out his hand to stabilize it. Surely God's, you know. Anyways, he reaches out his hand to stabilize it, and God does what? Yeah, he strikes out. He breaks out. I'm calling this God's lethal holiness. God's lethal holiness strikes. Now, my friends, we read something like this, and it rattles our nerves, and it rattled David's nerves. I mean, maybe in our heart of hearts, there's actually this little voice coming up. Because sometimes I think this shows up in our actions. How dare God strike out like this? Doesn't he know that he should be content with our good sentiments and our majority agreements? Doesn't he know that he should be satisfied with whatever we give him? Doesn't he know that we're busy people? And we should, he should just accept our smidgen of pragmatic piety that we offer. What's wrong with God? But be patient if you're thinking those thoughts. And listen a bit more. First, note off, notice there is a play. It's in the Hebrew, but it shows up here in the translation a little bit. There's a play on a Hebrew word, parats. Parats means to break out. So when it says, when you get down to verse uh, verse 11, Yahweh had paratzed against Uzzah, so they named the place Peretz Uzzah. It's a play on the word breakout. It will be memorialized as a place where Yahweh broke out against Uzzah. It's a play on the word breakout. Well, this play doesn't stop in chapter 13. It goes on into chapter 14. Here's the, the Lord who breaks out against his people when they are following God-resisters' ploys or God-resisters' patterns. And then you get to chapter 14, and those very same Philistines, the God-resisters, come against God's kingdom. And you'll notice when you get to chapter 14, verses, um, verses 10 through 17, you will notice that Yahweh breaks out again, but this time he breaks out against the God-resisters. He breaks out against them at the very same place, by the way, where he broke out against Uzzah. He breaks out against them. That's the same exact word. Huh. 
Maybe the Apostle Paul is right. God shows no partiality. If his people are following and acting like God resistors, no surprise then he might break out as he would against the God resistors. God shows no partiality. But secondly, know that all the way through Numbers, and if you're writing notes, Numbers 4, verses 4 through 6, 15, 17 through 20, and Numbers 7, verse 9, the Kohathites have been told repeatedly they're not to carry any of God's furniture on a cart. They're to take God's furniture when they move and they're to cover it up with this, the, the tent itself, the tabernacle. They're to cover it up and they're to carry it inconveniently as it may be. They're to carry it upon their shoulders. The reason why is because God is holy. He is not like others and therefore his furniture is not common Furniture. And so, for example, in Numbers 7, verse 9, when the, the Levites had been gifted a bunch of, of carts, it says when you get to Numbers 7, verse 9, but the sons of Koath, he gave none of those carts because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And so Koath is a part of that tribe, of that part of the Levites, or Uzzah is part of that, that tribe of the Levites. He knew better. He didn't stop David. He didn't say, David, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be carrying it because it's holy. We're to treat that which is holy and sanctified a little bit differently than we treat our own furniture. He didn't stop him, and I'm sure David probably knew as well also. They chose to do what the pagans did because it seemed more efficient, was very practical, and it made things a lot easier. You know what I'm saying? Far easier to throw it on a cart than to carry it around on the shoulders of people. Hmm. But secondly, and so notice, by the way, that David will come back around. So if, you're, if your Bible's open, look at chapter 15, verse 13. When he finally does bring the, cart, uh, the ark three months later home to Jerusalem... It will say in chapter 15, 13, David is talking to the Kohathites and he says, because you did not carry it the first time, Yahweh our God perezed. He broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. We knew better. And we chose to treat him like anybody else's God, any common God, and treat his furniture like common household furniture. Further, notice in this episode, especially verses chapter 13, verses 9 through 10, that God brings a surprising response to bear on their good sentiments and their majority approval. Showing us that um, he's not keen for just any old revival, any old reformation, any old kingdom building program that happens along. God has standards. And God takes being God seriously. Let me say that again, because that doesn't go well in our American world. God takes being God seriously, deadly serious. Now, maybe you're sitting there and thinking, well, that's why I'm glad we're not, we don't know that God of the Old Testament. He's mean. I love the fact that we got the God of the New Testament who's fuzzy and syrupy and sappy and cuddly and you can squeeze. 
season tight, right? Some people think that way. But did you not hear the New Testament reading in Acts chapter 5? To put it in the old street terms, homie, don't play those games. God is still God. He takes being God seriously. Here are people using religion to cover up what they actually did. There was nothing wrong with what they did. They just simply lied and used religion to make themselves look far better than they were. There's a whole sermon there, by the way. One that's very convicting, right? And God won't play that game. It's the same God. The last thing I want you to notice is that not all unity is good unity. And you've heard me talk about unity because it is a top drawer issue in the New Testament since Jesus commanded it. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment, not suggestion, not idea, not thought, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So this way all the world will know that you are my disciples. Unity in the New Testament is a top drawer issue right up there with justification and sanctification and other things. But not all unity is good unity. Notice that their unified agreement was based upon the wrong foundation. It was based upon good sentiments. It was based upon securing God's pleasure their way. It was based upon pragmatic decisions. Chapter 13 is a caution to the making of unity the only aspect. If, we're going to be, if there's going to be unity, it must be a proper unity grounded upon, upon the reliable God and what the reliable God says. I just read this last week a statement, a quotation, and an interview by O. Palmer Robinson, who's a, one of the old-timers in our denomination. It was a, an interview about this last General Assembly, and he said this, the primary standard... And if we're ever going to have peace in the PCA, if we're ever going to come in perfect unity, it is on the basis of what does the Bible teach. That's exactly right. It can't be peace, unity for its own sake. So like in our membership vows, the last thing we say is that we will strive for the peace and the purity of the church, right? That purity is the idea of, yeah, doctrinal fidelity, but also moral fidelity. But notice it's peace and purity. You've heard me say this so many times before, I'm going to say it again. Unfortunately, even in our own denomination, we have those who want to elevate one over the other. They want purity at the expense of peace. And you know it by, by the way they talk. They're willing to burn the house down to get their way. Right? That's not godliness. That's worldliness. But then you have others who want peace at any cost. Go along and get along. If you don't know this, if you ever go and talk to, and I'm not bad-mouthing them, but just simply, if you ever talk to your friends who are in a liberal denomination, that's the problem. It's, pure, it's peace at all costs. And God's word is not even God's word in that context. Right? We can't have, it can't be either or. It's both and. That unity based upon and grounded upon the reliable God and what the reliable God says. And what you have in this episode is a unity that was based instead on good sentiment and majority agreement. And so then, verses 12 through 13, 
David, in verse 12, finally asks the right question. He finally asks the question he should have asked at the very beginning. Look at his question. It's right there in verse 12. How can I bring the ark of God home to me? Now here he's asking in desperation and despair. Right? But it's the right question he should have asked at the beginning. How can I bring the ark of God home to us? Oh, what has God said about it? That's the question he should have asked earlier. But here he's asking it. In desperation. He's asking it in fear. Isn't that an interesting word? Right before he asked the question, it says he was afraid of God that day. Just like you heard in Acts chapter 5 when God broke out on Ananias and Sapphira. The church was afraid. The people feared. And you may think, well, fear, that's, we're never, ever, ever, ever really supposed to ever be afraid of God. But did you not hear the hymn we just sang in 460, Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So that move with fear is the right kind of move. You even hear it when you get to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence. And that Greek word is eulabia. It means to fear. Let us offer acceptable worship with fear, with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. God's lethal holiness. You may remember the story in chapter Luke, Leviticus chapter uh, 10. When the tabernacle was being dedicated... And God is pleased, and so he shows his pleasure. And what he does is on the altar, he actually has, he he lights, God lights a fire on the altar. It was wonderful, right? Just giving his seal of approval. And so um, they're taking the fire that was there, the coals, and they're starting to put it in censers the way God declared these censers. Then you put incense on. It's a symbol of prayer is what it is. Well, Aaron's other two sons, it was three of his sons did that. Two of his sons decided they didn't like that. They decided they would do what was easiest. And so it was, uh, Anna, uh, not Ananias and Sapphira, that's the wrong people. Hold on. It's, um, um, help me out, come on, come on, come on. Okay, it was those two guys. Okay, just go read Leviticus 10. I just had a senior moment. And they decide to use common, yeah, Nadab and Abihu, that's it. They decide to use common fire, common coals. Not what God had sanctified, but what they had generated. And they come and they bring that incense. And God does what? Anybody remember? He breaks, yes, what? what? They drop dead because God broke out against them, right? And so Aaron, his son's dead, and so he's worried, he's upset, right? And then Moses says to him, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. So David moves the ark with fear. Fear is not always a bad thing, and sometimes maybe we need more of it. And so maybe this is a similar question. David's question may be the question we ought to be asking. How can we draw near to this holy God? He is holy. And so then notice the very last verse of chapter 13. 
the ark remains outside of Jerusalem. The ark remains outside of Jerusalem. Reformation, revival, misfires. David stores the ark of God's presence, the ark of God's covenant at the house of Obed-Edom. I'll let you know now, Obed-Edom was was proper for him to actually house the ark because he was a Levite and he could hold it aside there. So he holds, he parks the ark there at the house of Obed-Edom and the Reformation moment, the revival moment misfires. But there's hopefulness. There's hopefulness here that ends chapter 13 and it lingers here on the horizon. It's the last sentence of verse 14. And what does it say? And Yahweh blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. There's a hopefulness there. It may puzzle us, but there's a hopefulness God doesn't want to keep us away. He wants to be near his people. And he wants us to be near him. He doesn't want to cast his people off. He wants to be with his people. And so here's Obed-Edom receiving this sign of blessing for housing the ark. God wants David to become a little jealous maybe. So that he will come and go ahead and seek out the proper way to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And he will. Three months later, when you get to chapter 15. And so chapter 13 ends with this hopefulness. Well, we end chapter 13 then. Trembling. Trembling with David before Yahweh's holiness. I mean, the message is loud and clear for those who are returning from exile. Remember who this is written for. Those who've spent generations under Assyrian rule and Babylonian paganism and Persian uh, stuff, you know, and the oppressiveness. They have lived generations where they have seen too many spiritual alternatives. Where they have seen too many alternative lifestyles. Where they have seen too many alternative approaches to the God. And the temptation would very easily be, let's just do what they did. The message is loud and clear for them. My friends, the message is loud and clear for us. You and I dare not trifle with God, with a God who is both real and holy. Almighty God is not our little, neat, warm, fuzzy, tame buddy in the sky. God takes being God serious. It's what C.S. Lewis was trying to get us to finally stomach when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may remember this. Or he has Mr. Beaver tell Lucy and Susan, they've been hearing about Aslan, this, this lion, which is, by the way, a caricature of our Lord Jesus in the story. They've been hearing about this lion, and they're scared to death. And so Susie and Lucy and Susan ask if Aslan, that's the name of the lion, if Aslan is safe. Save, said Mr. Beaver. Do you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. That's really the point of the whole episode. He's not safe, but he's good. 
And here's David riding the swelling crest of success, riding the swelling crest of popularity, triumph, large numbers of followers and viewers, and high approval ratings. And then he and we are abruptly reminded that God's lethal holiness shows us that God is not safe. When we come to the end of chapter 13, we see, though, yet he is good. He is plentiful in his goodness, even blessing Obed-Edom. I think the message further is meant to tell us God cannot be co-opted to support any old revival or reformation that feels good to us, that stokes our egos. That God cannot be drafted into anyone's agenda, even a kingdom-strengthening program by his own hand-picked king that was all built upon good sentiment and majority approval. So if there's ever going to be any reforming of the church of Jesus Christ, ever any reforming and restoring and growth and change, good changes within our own denomination of Christ's church, or in our congregations, or in our families, or in our personal lives, if there's ever going to be any revival among the people of God, we will need to take God seriously as well and to approach him upon his own terms. Or as David puts it when we get to chapter 15, verse 13, seek him according to the rule. Now, good Protestants that we are, we hear that language and we break out in hives. Seek him according to the rule. We think immediately of rigid precisionism, but that becomes too close to magic. Think of it, the rule, as in a relationship rule. Right, you husbands, if, you are, if you're having a happy marriage, it's because you know the rules. Come on, come on, lighten up with me a minute. Because you know, yes, thank you, you know the rules. There's a relational rule, right? Your wife may like a toolbox. Wonderful, but probably I would imagine most of our wives would not like a toolbox. So guess what? You probably shouldn't buy her on bir- her birthday. A toolbox. But maybe she likes, you know, other things. Maybe she... I don't know, whatever she likes, you know the relational rule. You approach her in that relational rule. Does that make sense? So we seek him according to the rule. Think of relational rule. He's told us how we can draw near to him. And that principle then, my friends, flows into many areas of our lives as Christians. It flows into our worship. It actually governs the way that we worship. We approach him not on our own terms. And the way that we worship. Why do we say that? Because of things like 1 Chronicles 13 and Leviticus 10. We're asked the question, how can we approach God? He's told us, let us do it his way. That principle affects our church life. How are we supposed to be as a church? As we together draw and near to God and approach him. He's already told us. I just gave you one, for example, John 13, verse 34 and 35. How about marriage? Yeah, we actually do either approach God together as a married couple or we don't. Well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, let me go to, from preaching to meddling a minute. Husbands, you approach God on his, according to the rule as you 
actually treat your wife certain ways, like 1 Peter 3, 7. You treat her as a partner of of the heir, as an heir of grace with you. You don't deride and diminish her. You don't use ham-fistedness to get her to comply, because if you do, Peter says, your prayers will not be answered. You will not have access. You approach as a married man with your wife the way according to the rule, the way God has laid out. The same with women. There's the rule, right? It all applies at every area of life, at every level. So good sentiment and majority agreement do not equal success. Having either of those, good sentiment and majority agreement, or having both of those can be a help. It's great when we have good sentiment. You know what I mean? It's great when we're all on board together. Yeah. But sometimes those can be downright harmful. And so it's good sentiment and majority agreement all wrapped around and based upon what the reliable God says. Upon the reliable God and what he says. And here, my friends, we're back to our 2020 principle. I need to see some glasses. Yes. Right? Second Chronicles 2020. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And I think our Westminster Confession of Faith is right. That part of saving faith actually is believing what God has revealed in the Scriptures. Do you get it? If we want to believe the Lord, that means we want to hear the Lord. We want to do what He says, right? Believe in the Lord your God and you'll be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. This is the way forward. But it also confirms for us that promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land, heal the kingdom, heal the church. We come at his calling, we come his way, the way that he's opened up before us. And how do we know that it's right, that it works, works, so to speak? Because he said, here's the way. That's the point. This is the, this is the right path. This is the ancient path that is the good way where we will find rest for our souls. Well, maybe you're sitting there and saying, well, how do I get near to God? Does he really want us? Yes, James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, maybe you're asking David's question. How can I really draw near to God? Well, here's the primary way to approach God. The first step that is at every part of the journey Right? You, this is always there. It's number one every day, all the time. It's this. Christ. You heard it in the call to worship. Jesus said, I am the what? And? And? No one can come to the Father but? By me. You want to draw near to God, and I hope you do. First and always, it's in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's good news, right? But as you draw near to God through Jesus Christ, you find out something about God's lethal holiness. And this is going to come up when we come to communion. All of us are subject to God's lethal holiness. Sorry, it's bad news. All of us. Because all of us had betrayed God and sinned against God and revolted against God. God's lethal holiness is still there. It's not gone away. 
bad news moment. If you continue to walk away from God, if you reject his son, that's all you can anticipate in the future is God's lethal holiness. But you come to Jesus, you find that God's lethal holiness was poured out on Jesus, justly and rightly poured out on Jesus for you. And you are now relieved from that. As John 3, verse 35 is talking about, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Dear friend, if I'm talking to you, I want you to know, I don't want you to go that way. I don't want that for you. Christ is the way. God has provided the way to draw near. I beg you to call upon the name of the Lord. And you will, not might, not could, you will be saved. You'll be rescued from that lethal holiness that you deserve, that I deserve. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you. We, we do thank you. We thank you for this episode, for it does correct us. It does help us. Correction is not bad. Correction is what people, what parents who love their kids do. They correct their kids. You love us, and so you correct us. So thank you for this corrective passage and this part of the episode. And thank you that this story is not over. There's more to come. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we play with you and the sense that we treat you lightly and we treat your stuff lightly. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for thinking that at times all we need is good sentiment and majority agreement. Forgive us, Lord, when times we make peace the be-all, the end-all, and the times we make purity the be-all, the end-all. Forgive us, Lord, for all of these things. Do draw us near. Thank you for the promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Thank you for your son Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life and by whom alone we have access to you. Lord, lift our hearts. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.